You're listening to the Restoration Church Podcast. We are a local congregation in Lexington, Kentucky, and we would love to see you join God's restoring work of love in your life. You can find out more about us at restorationlex.com slash welcome. There's helpful links about how you can grow, how you can serve, and be good news in our city. Thanks for listening. We we preach through something called the Revised Common Lectionary here. Uh, We read one of the passages today from this week. We go from Advent to Pentecost, from the birth of Jesus to the birth of the church. And every year, usually what I do is I sit down and sort of tentatively plan out which uh, passage I'm going to preach on. And this year, as we were planning this out, looking forward, there was one Sunday above every Sunday that got me so pumped more than any other passage throughout the entire year. And this is that Sunday. I woke up on Monday morning thinking this is food sacrifice to idols week. I was so pumped about this. Now you're thinking, what are you talking about, you weirdo? I'm not being sarcastic or facetious here. I have been giddy with anticipation to talk about 1 Corinthians 8 and sacrificing meat to idols. It is fast. I hope you're excited too. Now, Perhaps that seems a little not relevant for you today. I don't know if you are the type of people who, when you consume your, your meat or whatever you're eating on a given day, if you're concerned whether it's been sacrificed in a, in a pagan ritual or not, I would say that's probably not the room uh, we're, we're in for, for that kind of environment. But I believe this really strange topic and passage in, in 1 Corinthians 8 could not be more relevant for you and I, for where we are as a church in the 21st century. And we'd be, I think, wise today as we press into this to look at what the Lord is speaking for us today. So I want to pray for us as we jump in, and then we're going to talk about this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that even though there's a lot of weird stuff in it, that it still speaks. Your word is living and active, not because it's a magical book, but because you, Jesus, are living and active. You are still speaking, Holy Spirit. You are still moving in our lives, in our stories, shaping us into the image of Jesus. And so that's what I ask for today. As we press into this passage, may you help us to see and understand, Lord, what you're speaking to us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So first of all, we're looking at the context of this passage in 1 Corinthians. The city of Corinth, you can see a picture of modern-day Corinth today, was a highly influential Greco-Roman city with a lot of wealth and a lot of debauchery, a lot of wild stuff going down there. It was a center of pagan worship. It was sort of the intersection of a lot of different cultures that kind of met throughout the region. And Paul, we learn, spent 18 months there. He wrote two letters that we see in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, yes, that's the second one. I thought someone might yell it out, but you did not. In the Corinthian church, people were struggling to figure out what it meant to be faithful to Jesus in a world that was definitely not friendly to their way of life. Now, when we imagine people come to faith in in Jesus in Corinth, this wasn't moving from sort of a vague, Christianized culture into a more serious Christianity. When you became a Christian in Corinth, you were coming out of a very, very, very different world. This was a world of idols and paganism and wild living all mixed in one. So 
When you convert to Christianity, when you convert to Christ, this was not simply a matter of what you believed in your head. This had to be a transformation of lifestyle, a movement out of one world and worldview into something completely different. So keep that in mind, that context here as we look at verse 1. Paul writes, Now about food sacrificed to idols. Now, why bring that up? Why is Paul bringing up something so strange? It's clear that this was a conflict in the church. Luckily, we don't struggle with conflict in the church anymore. But this was clearly a pastoral statement about a conflict happening in this particular community. There was a strong difference of opinion on a secondary theological issue, and it was threatening the unity of the church. So Paul felt the need to address it. Now, you can see why this is relevant. Because we face conflicts, we face differences of opinion on secondary issues all the time, don't we? We're sitting in a room with a bunch of people, I hate to break it to you, but they had differences of opinions on secondary theological issues. So this could not be more relevant to where we are. Now, the question we're asked, I believe, from this passage is, can we hold to our convictions and yet at the same time hold on to unity? Can we hold on to what we believe and yet at the same time in those differences find unity? We live in a world that is happy to monetize and celebrate polarization. We live in a world where you are not just encouraged, but they have put dollars behind you making sure that you know who you are against, who you are different from. This world teaches us that our identity is found primarily in who we are not. And when we are not, we are not those people. Everybody in here probably has a those people. The ones you know, if they showed up and walked in this door today, you'd be like, what are you doing here? I did not invite you. And so this is what we're pressing into and why it couldn't be more relevant to what we're saying. So let's keep reading with what Paul is saying. He says, now about these food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Now this word knowledge in the Greek is this gnosis. And in that world it meant more than just a collection of facts. It's a spiritual imagination in that day of knowledge that brought you to a place of enlightenment. Something that was higher than the physical plane. In the Greek world, that was what you were understanding. Do you have knowledge? It wasn't just what do you know. It was have you achieved a higher level of understanding. And Paul then speaks of this knowledge, this gnosis, as a sense of superiority. Which, by the way, a little mini tiny sermon within a sermon. When you start hearing about people saying they have the secret uh, part of Christianity that nobody else does, run. That's called Gnosticism. That is something that is a heresy that tries to separate body and soul. Christianity does not separate these two things. Paul says knowledge then puffs up. It makes you arrogant and superior. 
Again, luckily, we don't have a problem in the church anymore with people thinking they know more things and making them arrogant and better than everyone else. We have not struggled with that in a while. Of course we have. Paul reminds us that when we get into these mindsets that I'm more enlightened, I have a higher level of faith than everyone else, there is a problem. Knowledge puffs up, but what does love do? It builds up. Paul is laying a foundation that all of this knowledge is meaningless if we are feeding our pride, if we think we are better than other people. Knowledge makes you arrogant, but love not only builds you up, love builds those around you up as well, which means both then and now what is clear for us is that Christ is known not just in what we know or what we believe, but in how we love. This should be clear. I hope clear for those who attend and are a part of restoration that how we love defines us, as we've sang today, far more than our theological imaginations, far more than our opinions, far more than our doctrine. How we love is how we are known in this world, right? Knowledge puffs up, but what's love do? Love builds up. And in this context, Corinth, the city... What was happening about this particular weird meat sacrifice to idols thing is, is that those who came out of this pagan lifestyle, when you sacrifice these animals to these angry pagan gods, when they're doing this, that may not seem like a big deal to just eat a hamburger, but when you eat a hamburger that you know is connected to a time and a place in your story that is very painful and is very pagan, and very contrary to Christ, it's not just a matter of a meal. It's a life you are trying desperately to escape. It is a world that you don't want to be a part of anymore. It reminds them of what they were before Christ. And in some cases, this consuming of this meal, this meat, could have drawn them back into their old way of living. So on one side, there are Christians then who are bothered by the consumption of these, this, this meat sacrificed to idols. On the other side, they're thinking, it's just meat. I didn't do that. Can I just have a hamburger? Can I just eat this meal? That's the difference of opinion. So who is right? Are the people over here who say it's sinful and wrong to eat this meat sacrificed to idols, are they right? Or... Are the people who say, I, it doesn't impact me. I can just eat the meat. I, I, my heart is fine. I'm, I'm not concerned about it. It's not taking me away from Christ. Paul then begins to address what's happening. He continues, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came through whom we live. In the pagan ancient world, the worship of idols was driven a lot by fear. If you look at these gods that we see in Greek and Roman worlds, they are constantly warring and causing you to be afraid that if you slip up one little time, then they're not going to provide for you. Then they might kill you. But Paul reminds 
everyone on both sides of this issue that Jesus is central to their faith, and they no longer have to fear retribution from an idol. Listen, a lot of people still think of the God of the Bible that way. A lot of people are scared and terrified if they slip up that God is going to punish them because of their sin. Listen, the cross is where your sin was dealt with. God is not a retributional God. God is not a God that you have to be afraid of down here that if you slip up, he's going to strike you with lightning bolt. You nullify the work of the cross when you see God with that level of retribution. Paul's reminding them, our God's not like that. Our God is not a violent, angry, retributional God. We have the God revealed in Jesus Christ. And this is something that both sides of this issue need to know. Jesus isn't simply one of many gods out there whose power they have to reckon with. I have to appease Jesus, but at the same time, I got to appease this idol over here. No, we've been freed. We've been rescued. These idols are just empty shells of a God that is powerless before the living God. And this God doesn't live in the temple that you've gone to to sacrifice. This God now dwells in a new temple that is us, his followers. The Holy Spirit dwells within him. No matter where they land in this argument, the belief that has to be agreed on is that Jesus is Lord and these idols are not, right? I don't care where you land, Paul is arguing here. Jesus is central. These idols that have crushed you for so many years do not have power. And this is what's so true today in this, is that there can be unity in the ways that we are different when Jesus is center. When Jesus is the center of our faith and our identity, then we can hold together unity in difference because we're not centered around our opinions and how we are different. When Jesus is center, there is room for us to find unity even in our difference. And we're going to see that played out because while there are idols that loom over the imaginations of this culture that are powerless, their impact on our lives and believers remain. And Paul speaks to this. He continues. Look up with me on the screen. It says, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Now, it's fascinating. And most of you know this, the way our brains can be triggered in anxieties and emotions when we find ourselves in environments that remind us of seasons in our past, right? Have you ever driven by a building that reminded you of a season in your life and you just don't even want to look at it? Have you ever walked into a room that made you feel deeply uncomfortable because it, it triggered some sort of memory of of an experience, maybe even a religious memory of an experience that you've had in the past, and all of a sudden your whole body tenses up and you don't know why. Maybe the smell of certain foods elicits a sad reminder of a loved one that's gone too soon. Maybe there's a song that comes on the radio that stirs up these memories of things that we're trying to forget. Our bodies remember as much as our minds, right? And when our bodies remember these things, we have to have compassion on ourselves in these places. And hopefully, 
being a community that has compassion on us as well. I wonder if that's what's happening here with these Christians in the church of Corinth. They may know in their mind that eating meat sacrificed to idols is not sinful, but because it triggers painful experiences of paganism past, maybe that's why they're pushing it away. You can know that something is true in your mind, but your body has yet to believe it, right? Your body still holds on. They may know it's not sinful, but to them and where they actually are, it brings them to a place of anxiety. And when you miss those anxieties with a faith that is immature, sometimes what happens is you get legalism that comes from that. You're scared of going back, and so not only do you try to protect yourself, you try to make sure no one else gets there either. No one else is allowed to at all. Because if it's wrong for me, it's wrong for everybody. Does that feel familiar to anybody? One of the things I've learned over the years, I believe legalism is the product of anxiety. You look for legalism, when you find it, it's always because people are anxious and scared. It is the product of our fears and not our faith. It's rooted in this good desire to reject evil and reject sin, and reject what is abusive, but at the same time, when you build up those walls of protection against the sinful, evil world out there, you end up protecting yourself from God and from your neighbors as well. You end up putting up walls that do not allow you to love as you have been called to love. So like the Pharisees before him, legalists believe that you should enforce your obedience at all costs. No matter what, obedience is what we have to make sure everyone else does and not just me. Because we have to free ourselves from the dangers of sin and evil out there. Never mind what's happening in here. Because our fingers are pointed out there. Now, in a way, what's hard is that they're right. There is brokenness and evil we have to be aware of in the world, but they're wrong about how this obedience protects us from those things. Tim Keller writes this. He says, religion operates on this principle that I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel operates on the principle I am accepted through Christ and therefore I obey. Obedience does not come as a protective measure against all the things that are happening out there. Obedience comes in knowing who we are in Christ and living from this place of love. Then we obey. When we treat obedience like a protective measure against what's happening out there, stuff always goes wrong in here. Always. What we do is we deny the gospel's power itself. Instead of perfect love, Driving out fear, as the scriptures tell us, we have perfect fear driving out love. And at this point, you may say, amen. <laughs> Inspect us to move on, because we don't want these legalistic people pushing these things upon us. But Paul then stops us in our tracks. Those of us who are ready to say, yeah, get those legalists. <laughs> because this isn't a passage about how we free people, we enlighten folks are right and those religious legalists are wrong and they can take a hike. That's not what Paul says. If that, We just stop right there, maybe, but we continue. Look how he challenges us next. He continues, be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Whew. 
So on one end, you see this loveless legalism that builds a wall between us and God and our neighbors. But on the other side, we see something just as dangerous to our souls. We see a self-expression that sees you do you as more important than love your neighbor. We see a self-expression that if we're honest, those of us who've grown up in legalistic backgrounds run headlong to the other way because we are sure that that must be freedom and that's bondage. But the tragedy is we often run from one bondage to the other, from one absolute denial of freedom to something that looks almost like its mirror image. So we celebrate our freedom in Christ, but we do so in a way that separates us in arrogance from other believers who we, if we're honest, we look down on as backwards. It's easy to see the ways that legalism can cause division in the church. That's easy. We see it all the time. But to have the honesty to look at how our freedom when it's not anchored in love, can be just as divisive, that's when things get difficult. And here's what's wild. Paul, as we look at this passage, he doesn't really be, seem concerned with who's winning this theological argument here. He doesn't seem concerned with what's happening there. Paul's concern, more than anything else in this passage, is how they're loving one another. More than who is right, he's concerned with how they love. I've said this many times in our congregation, and I want to say it again. Love is always more concerned with being reconciled than being right. And if love is more concerned with being reconciled than right, then my freedom, what God has given me in my freedom, is not a tool simply for how I self-express my faith. My freedom is an opportunity to call myself into love. My freedom is an opportunity to make space at the table for those who may not share that freedom. Paul makes this clear. Galatians 5.13 says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. We American Christians need this so desperately. American freedom is individualistic freedom. It is a me freedom. American freedom is me freedom, but Christian freedom is we freedom. Christian freedom is about not just my freedom, but how my freedom impacts my ability to love others. We love to take the first half of that verse and put it with an American flag behind it and throw it on Facebook and be happy with it. We don't like the second half of that verse most of the time. Because it shows us that our freedom has not been given just for our service, but for the service of sacrificial sacrificial love towards our neighbors and even our enemies. And I, I think this needs to be abundantly clear because, as you know, we have entered into a year that is likely going to be highly charged with political pandering, with politicians using and abusing the language of faith, we must put our stake in the ground as the people of Jesus and say, we are free, yes, but we're free for the sake of love, not for the sake of self. We are free for the sake of love for God and for our neighbors and for our enemies. That is what marks us as the people of Jesus and not just our self-expression and self-freedom and self Centeredness. And this is so important because 
you are walking out into a world after this service where you are consuming information, where primarily you are discipled to divide. You and I, in what we listen to and how we consume the content that comes our way on a weekly basis, are being taught to know how to divide in this world. And the truth is, division is easy. It's easy to know what we're against. It's easy to know who the bad guys are. It's easy to know who they are, especially in the church. Unity, though, unity, my friends, is hard. Unity takes more than self-human effort. Unity takes the Holy Spirit himself working and moving in us. Often, what we settle for is this counterfeit unity that's only rooted in everybody being the same. Everybody thinking alike and looking alike and voting alike. That's an easy unity because you don't have to fight for anything. You don't have to listen. You don't have to seek to understand anyone different from you when everyone you go to church with is just like you. But I believe we've been called into something more than just sameness. We've been called to oneness. Oneness and sameness are not the same thing. Oneness says I have unity in Christ even in my difference. But sameness, or oneness, sameness says that I am only gathering around the things that we agree on. We choose unity in Jesus. And this, after all, is what I believe Jesus has called us to, our calling in the world. John 17, as he's praying for us, he makes this clear. I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I don't know if you saw that or not, but Jesus says our unity is the strategy by which we show him to the world. Are we here? Are you hearing this? Our unity reflects Jesus to the world. Not our sameness, but our oneness reflects Jesus to the world. Our unity, in spite of differences, is one of the loudest and clearest pictures of the gospel that we offer a divisive and polarized world. We are radically different when we seek that out together. And it's a unity that's found in our center, in Jesus. Are there essential beliefs that we hold to? Yes, absolutely. There is absolutely truth that we cannot let go of, that we cannot compromise. I think the Apostles' Creed is a great place to look and to start of a biblical example of this ancient statement of faith rooted in Scripture that encapsulates this foundational truth of our faith. I would encourage you to look at that. I think that is what we cling to and hold to together. But beyond this, there's lots of secondary doctrinal issues of interpretation that men and women of faith, good Bible-loving men and women of faith can reasonably disagree, right? There can be disagreement in that and still have peace and love and unity. In our passage today, Paul makes room for both of these people to be loved and belong in the church. He makes room for both for those who cannot eat the meat and those who have freedom, both to belong and to love one another. We can disagree in love when Jesus is the sender. We can disagree in love when Jesus is the center. There is a saying as we close here today of, that came into prominence. We don't really know the, 
original statement where it came from, but it came into prominence in the 16th century European church during a period of great violence. There were folks who are Catholic, and there were folks who were Protestant, and they were killing one another, which is just insane to look back on. The history of the church in Europe in the 16th, 17th centuries, the violence just against Catholics and Protestants. And there's this other group, the Anabaptists, who decided, we want to take the ideas of Jesus a little more seriously than that and not seek violence. And so both Catholics and Protestants killed them. <laughs> they came in and attacked them. And this Moravian church uh, is what they're called, one of the Anabaptist denominations. The Moravian church, this is a denomination of peacemakers and people who are religious refugees in southern Germany from a lot of different backgrounds. I actually found out a few years ago that this is my heritage. These people came over. This revival that lasted 100 years with all these religious refugees is my people. I found Jacob Rohr, a Moravian pastor buried in Nicholasville, and thought, I'm home. I knew I was weird like them. Yes, but they adopted this statement that went like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all beliefs, love. That is my heart for our church. That is my heart that you know that as we gather and as we walk together in our stories and how we understand our faith and wrestle with things that we know we believe and we're not sure that we believe, we can have unity because in these essentials there is unity and non-essentials there's liberty, there's freedom, but in everything we say and believe and wrestle with in both faith and doubt, we will do it with love. Amen? Hold fast to that. I want our witness in this city to be that weird place where not everybody's alike, but man, they love one another. Man, they wrestle with these things together with such grace and compassion. Man, look at the way they make room at the table for people who do not agree with them, who are different from them, who don't vote and look and think like them. How weird is this place? It's not like the world around us. And that's why I celebrate today as we move into a time of communion. What a supernatural gift these elements are. Because not only do we celebrate in communion that we are united with Christ by his sacrifice, the cracker representing Jesus' body, the juice representing his blood shed for our sins. We have some right here, some in the back too if you want to participate with us. But one of the things we do on a weekly basis is we share this meal together. There are going to be people taking these elements, sitting in chairs beside you today, who don't think like you, who don't look like you, who don't vote like you. And I love the miracle that we're about to participate in. And that in a world that is happy to divide you in every way possible, what's happening this morning, we're making a statement. We're putting a stake in the ground that we are the people of Jesus and we are different. We're making room at the table of Jesus even for those who disagree with us. So, Father, that's what I want to pray for. I want to pray this morning, first, Lord, that we would be convicted of the ways that we have surrendered ourselves to the voices and the vision of division and hatred and violence in this world, and that we would come back to the peacemaking, enemy-loving, Christ-shaped church that you've called us to be. God, in the ways that we have in our own hearts pushed away 
and demonized and dismissed people who are not like us. May you bring a gentle conviction that brings a holistic change in how we see and love those around us. God, in this coming year, put down roots in us, roots in the love that Paul talks about in Ephesians 3. It says, may we be rooted and established in love that together with all the saints we may know how high and long and wide and deep is this love of Christ, this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. Those words from Ephesians 3 make that tangibly true among us, Jesus. Unite us in your love. We pray this in your name.